I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. Welcome back to Systemic. This is Dan Kimbrough, and today we are joined by Joshua Brockway. Uh, Josh and I go way back, uh, someone else from Manchester College. Josh is currently the Director of Spirituality for the Church of the Brethren nationally. Uh, also teaches history at Northern Seminary. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Adjunct. So Josh and I are going to have a conversation today looking at Christianity uh, and systemic racism and sort of how Christianity has propped up systemic racism uh, here in America, uh, but, all, you know, overall looking at multiple uh, different races, but also what's being done from his view to sort of dismantle it. So um, one of the things that you sent me, Josh, to read, talked about the idea that from a very early standpoint, Christianity has sort of found a way of centering itself at most things and creating others out of any everyone else. And I think that really ties into this notion of white supremacy and, and systemic racism in that Christianity has become sort of the standpoint of, you know, a white religion, but really Christians were Gentiles. They weren't the actual original right. Christians, depending on when you put, put that title on. So could you talk about racism and systemic racism and sort of how a white-centered view of Christianity has sort of hurt groups in the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a an amazing question. I mean, uh, you know, just to give props to to uh, Dr. Willie James Jennings, who's at Yale, and his book, The Christian Imagination, which you know documents all of this all the way through, and he does it through a particular methodology. Um, but it's a helpful one to see the connections, especially coming out of Europe, um, right at the same time as. Europe is expanding into the Western hemisphere, right? As, as colonialism mm-hmm. is taking shape. Um, if, if you look at that and the thing that struck me was him saying like, look, the same time Columbus is setting sail, right? Jews are being expelled from Spain. So in the very same year, 1492, um, Jews are expelled from Spain, which was a Christian, well, a Christian kingdom. Right. Um, and so then he says, there's always this question about if people converted or not, right? If they if they really became Christian, and the only way that um, they could begin to determine that or even get take a guess, right, was skin color. Whether that's um, you know North African Muslims in the Spanish Kingdom or or Jewish king, Kingdom members, right? Like they begin to link skin color to Christianity in a way as an other, right there. Um, now, at the same time that's happening, right, like the whole Western hemisphere expands, right? So you start to find a whole nother range of people groups that that don't look European, right? Mm-hmm. They're not white. They're not white skinned or maybe dark hair, right? Like, so all of these things start to link skin tone 
um, ethics, their ability to act in certain ways, and also their belief systems. Um, I mean, for, for centuries then, Christianity starts to, quote unquote, scientifically link all of these things together with skin tone, right? I mean, basically making a hierarchy of, you know, at the peak of this hierarchy is white Europeans and you keep moving down. You might have Asians who are, you know, really smart still or or have a strong work ethic, but they're still not quite there. And then you have Native Americans and then you have Africans and and they're at the bottom of the list, right? The darker the skin, um, the least appreciated the least valued the only thing they're good for is basically enslavement at that point right all right um, and i know one of the things when we look back <clears throat> at some of the early slave code and slave laws you know early on if someone who was enslaved was brought over from a country that was deemed christian there was the opportunity for freedom and then eventually that goes away and at one point if you could find a way of baptizing the enslaved individuals whether they were native american or they were african that was a way to freedom but then that goes away as well and so there's almost this direct link with looking at early american laws and slave laws and christianity and this notion of how do we really start eliminating all others so that here in america if you are Christian, you are white. And if you are free, you are white. And so it's almost like freedom and Christianity become linked together at some point. Yeah, completely. Right. Like, so in, in England at that point, to if you were to baptize someone, you couldn't hold them as a slave anymore. Right. So mm-hmm. it doesn't take long until in the Virginia colony, they come along and they're like, no, this is not economically beneficial for us. Because they wrestle. I mean, they they do fight about, they do argue about in the literature. um, What do you do with these quote unquote heathens, right? Like they're still, even if they're Christian, they're coming from African places where Christianity has existed back to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth century. Mm -hmm. Even if they're Christian, they still aren't the right Christian, which means my thing, right? My white thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they say, this is an economic. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. They, they start to say then, well, this isn't economically beneficial, right? So if I baptize them, which is part of what I'm supposed to do in the Christian life, I lose their labor and their economic benefit to me. So really what we're going to say is if you're, if you're black, you're enslaved, right? It doesn't matter what we do, whether that's we teach you the Bible or we baptize you. Enslavement becomes linked then to, to being black. Mm-hmm. Which mentioned the old idea that, you know, what we're supposed to do as Christians is, is baptize individuals. And it seems like it's almost there must have been some sort of struggle. If the idea of missionary work and, and, and be, if you were a good Christian, part of it is prophesizing and, and, and trying to convert people to Christianity. But then you have this brick wall that says, well, no, economically for the country to move forward, we can't be, you know, quote unquote, good Christians and do this. And so I know there were, uh, it's a John Wolf I'm thinking of, who was an abolitionist who, who wrote a book called, you know, On the Keeping of Negroes, where he literally sort of, this was the entire book, was this notion of how does one call themselves a Christian while owning another individual and refusing, you know, the, 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 the right of baptism to somebody for the pure notion of economical gain. And so what... I don't, I, there's probably not a single point or a single issue where this, you know, where this happened, but how is it then that when we look at a lot of African-Americans who come out of slavery and out of that, you know, uh, 
Annabelle O'Hara, how is it that it becomes linked, you know, that all these Africans who eventually become black and African-Americans are so tied to Christianity when Christianity, we can see from early on, has been built around this idea of keeping them down. Mm -hmm. Sure. There's, there's some theologians, right, that say one of the greatest examples of God's goodness is the black church, the existence of the black church. Um, wow. That uh, the, the idea is to say, like, they, they still find within the scriptures in particularly um, when they are taught to read, especially by some Methodist ministers and some Baptists, some Quaker uh they are taught to read and they start to engage the scriptures. They really do find the story of liberation right from, from Moses on. And they, they start Mm -hmm. to read it through that lens. um, And it becomes a source of, of not just comfort, but it's also challenge. It's giving them a vision beyond the current place. James Cone is, is amazing as he talks about this stuff in, in God of the oppressed and cross and the lynching tree where he's saying like, they looked at Jesus on the cross and saw someone who identified with their current suffering mm-hmm. right? and, and understood that, that God's salvation in kind of typical theological language is something that includes your actual physical, political, and economic liberation. And the fact that that's okay. a part of the black church through antebellum, uh, through reconstruction into Jim Crow is one of those things that we look at and say, this is another form of Christianity um, that took the Bible pretty seriously in its own context and understood it completely differently uh, from the dominant white frameworks coming out of Europe at that point. Which is really interesting. I know, you know, there's a lot of people who will argue theologians and non-theologians will argue, you know, one of Christianity's, easiest way of conversion is that it is it's it's a religion for those who are suffering right Mm -hmm. it's it's a religion of sufferers and that it's only through that suffering that you will find salvation and that early on you know like the bible is flipped in in its sort of hierarchy that the bible speaks to the notion of the meek shall inherit the earth but when we look at practice of most christians throughout history christianity is built on the idea that no while the meek may inherit the earth in the book in practice, those who are looking to inherit the earth in gains and, and financial means are those who have, not those who have not. So it's this weird sort of dichotomy that flips back and forth that the you know the book preaches one thing, but in practice we're learning something else, we're seeing something else. Right. There's a there's a strong and this is starting to move towards your second question, right? Like what's being undone um, in regards particularly to white supremacy and and Christianity is to say, um, you actually need to find people who are reading it from the margins, reading it, meaning the scriptures that aren't reading it from a position of power and privilege in a way that kind of corrupts or maintains a current status quo, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, those things you you go to the gospel in Luke and it's pretty clear, right? Like blessed are the poor now, right? Like these, these things are all current existential moments, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of persons, I mean, good colleagues of mine, uh, great friends, I can name drop them if you want, that that really say, look, if you're really serious about trying to understand scripture in a way that isn't connected to the dominant U.S. narrative that we've seen in the last 
four or five years take really strong hold again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You got to like go and listen to the preachers from the black church or the Hispanic church, um, native American leaders, right. That, that give you a sense of the scripture from the place when it was written, right. Written by a people at the margins of the dominant empire. (laughs) That's an interesting thing. I like that. And it's, well, that's an interesting thing, you know, and so how much in looking at the past four or five years and that tragedy, um, Mm -hmm. but you know, how much, I guess how much pushback is there or how much willingness is there to really, to hear from the margins. And I know Jenkins talked about that as well, is that, you know, if we're going to move forward, it's, it's not at a white centered church, but looking at, you know, who's, who's on the margins and who, what are they saying and how are they preaching? Um, and I like that you say that it ties back into that's that's sort of where it came from in the beginning, right? Christianity mm-hmm. comes from those who were on the margins, and so to get full circle, we have to go back to that. But is there is there pushback? You know, how how much willingness is there to, for that to really happen? Uh, it's, yeah, that's a really <laughs> it's amazing. There's actually a book, um, and I haven't finished it, so I don't want to give you the whole summary called White Rage, and it and it documents these kind of consistent white pushbacks whenever some sort of advance advancement for those at the margins, particularly um, black Americans comes along. Right. So you think reconstruction and then you have the, like just the reassertion through Jim Crow, then you have the civil rights movement. Then you, you know, kind of circle back into the Reagan Democrats, um, the Southern strategy you talk about then Barack Obama becoming president. And then there's another cycle of that backlash, right? We can see the cycle of advancement, backlash, advancement, backlash for centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a, it's, it's a reality. Now in the church, I can tell you when you start in a white dominated church, when you start using language of white supremacy, it makes white folks, horribly uncomfortable. I mean, it just unsettles everything about them because, and I, and I can't think of who is, who is saying this, but this I'm putting it in my own words is to say, if there's one thing that a white person does not want to be called in their life, that's racist. Right. right? Because their images of racists are wearing white hoods, riding horses, you know, physically lynching people, um, burning crosses, right? That's the image of racist. While our understanding of what racism is has just expanded to understand the cultural formation, the socialization into a system of white supremacy, the dominance of white culture, um, all of that kind of stuff. So you start to name that. And, and I'm telling you from experience, like white folks, white pastors, just can't handle that accusation, right? Because it's all about intention. Well, I didn't mean to be, I wasn't intending <laughs> to be racist. It's like, no, I didn't say you were intending to be racist and I'm not challenging your intentions. I'm telling you or trying to reveal to you where your actions are making a racist impact. Right. right? Or have um, a, I think a, an impact in racism. Yeah. I think I know one place that I've read that, that analogy is uh, Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. Um mm-hmm is one of those places where, you know, that's what the one, one of those that pushback is, well, you can't call me a racist. I'm not being racist. You know, that, that that's the one big fear. Um, and in a lot of the DEI work, it's interesting that I start 
I start with trying to dismantle that notion. I'm like, well, we're talking about white supremacy as a system. So I'm not calling you a racist. Your actions may have been rooted in racism and the end effect of your actions may have been racist, but that doesn't make you a racist. That's a choice that you have to make on your own. And that's one of the ways that I've found to, to enter into that conversation. But even that there's always this pushback. I had someone actually say to me, well, maybe, maybe we're just framing it wrong, right? Maybe the PR on white supremacy is wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be calling it white supremacy. And I'm just like, well, what do you want to call it? (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. I could call it something else, but then I'm putting your feelings about white supremacy over the fact that it's white supremacy. Um, and so I definitely have seen that pushback in presentations and trainings that I've done. Um, but I think it's, but I think it's also valid, you know, when you're talking, you know, if there's a white pastor talking to their predominantly white congregation, that's, that's a whole level of training to be able to diffuse that and be like, look, you're right. Like it's not your intentions to be racist or even our church's intention to have done something racist, but we have. And so, you know, in looking at that, if you get past that, you know, what are some other things that are happening? I know the, one of the things you said, I know you said you hadn't finished it, but was the one that was talking about, um, you know, peacemaking and peacemakers and the idea of, of how do you show compassion to those who don't fully get it yet while still sort of holding their feet to the fire. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, oh man, that's, you know what, I, I mean, this is, you and I both know this, but I'll just say it for those that are checking in is that the Church of the Brethren is a, considers itself a peace church, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think one of the things about that is, is that we haven't quite wrestled with the fact that our idea of peace is, is framed by dominant white culture, right? It, mm-hmm. it has certain mm-hmm. assumptions about what that looks like. I mean, this is what happens to King all the time <laughs> where, you know, like he's the one causing violence. What? No. <laughs> you know, it's like that, it's like that TikTok meme, like, no, dummy. It, he's not right. causing the violence. His nonviolence and presence is revealing how violence maintains this current status quo that maintains a racialized hierarchy. Um, and the and he's actually receiving the physical blows, the physical violence, right? Um, we have we have documented evidence in our archives of after King's death, the number of of brethren writers or pastors or leaders, laypersons, just railed against King because of that idea, right? Like his form of disobedience and social change caused violence, right? Um, it. It is such a hard task and I, and I can't say how you do it. I mean, I think that there are some, I mean, the first thing that I would say is that we don't expect um, sisters and brothers of color to be the ones that have to walk someone through that. Right. Uh, that is that that becomes an extraordinarily traumatizing experience, right? Like we continue to ask um, especially black leaders well, come show us, teach us about, <laughs> teach us about what white supremacy <laughs> is and what racism is doing, and and then take our take our crap when we throw it back at you, right? Like that's a horribly traumatic experience. And so, I think the first step is that the white leaders taking a lead and being able to talk about it um, in much more 
I don't want to even say comfortable, but right. Like not being fearful of the conversation about race. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I taught a class here right when we went into quarantine for, um, basically they're all pastoral leaders, church leaders on the South side. So they're predominantly, the whole class was black students. And they were like, doc, how do you keep having this conversation and not freak out? I'm like, well, part of it is I can disassociate and talk about it historically, but I have to recognize that, you know, there are pieces of me, you know, theologically we talk about the fall as this thing that says, Nope, I'm impacted by how things are falling apart. And I unwittingly pick those up. So part of my transformation or my discipleship is to undo those things. So I'm here to hear you and what your experiences are, you know, 20, 2020 in Chicago and some of the um, unrest related to policing and such in the early, what is that? April, May, June of 2020. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure I'm actually answering your question, but I think that there's, there's work to do that and there's, perseverance, right? Like there's some sense for me in having these conversations is to be, to speak truthfully and plainly mm-hmm. without taking offense constantly. Right. Right. Um, right. there, uh, I do have those conversations with pastors, um, especially after, uh, after Kenosha, after George Floyd, there was this really striking moment where a number of pastors reached out and said, something is wrong here. I mean, I'm talking about white pastors. Something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, you're just figuring that out. Let's talk. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's do this. I love this opportunity and have those conversations. Um, but it's a long, long slog to stay connected to those persons so that they can continue to have that kind of transformation, their eyes open to what's happening and also their eyes open to how white Christianity has framed itself as so objective that it doesn't exist in its own socialized framework. And by socialized, right? Like I, I am trained to see the world in a certain way um, as a white person in the U S and so it's just, it's constantly digging at that stuff, you know, I mean, and it's, and it's often one, two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, right. one step back, right? Like that just stays well, a, there. Yeah. Cause same advancement and, you know, setbacks like what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, I know the answer. I know your answer. Well, I know your initial answer. I don't know how you'll explain it, but you know, is, <laughs> is, is, is the church's job to deal with this, right? Like, is this one of those things that, you know, if we if we don't say the church is white centered, we know it is, but it's not. Let's say we not. You know, is church the place, or you know, in preaching the gospel and talking about the life of of Christ and all these things, is this the place where race should be taught? You know, should it be in the pulpit or the Bible studies or things like? Is this it, or is is this not the church's work? Oh, I think a hundred percent is. I mean, that's where you said you know the answer to the question. I know, I know, I know the answer to the original question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a hundred percent it is right. Like. Well, I would say one of the issues even since 54 and 55 man is that the white church hasn't had a truthful conversation about race, white supremacy and its functions, right? Now we can point to all of these places um you know uh, it, it's a book called Divided by Faith where the sociologists talk about these movements 
Um, Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes kind of rehearses some of that and says, look, we got promise keepers that tried to work on reconciliation, race reconciliation. And it was a really cool symbol for a while, but when they started really working at it, the movement dies. Um, Mm -hmm. Or we have John Perkins uh, from Jackson, Mississippi, working with uh, Wayne Gordon, who's a colleague of mine up here. And we have these really great interpersonal stories. But to maintain that systemic undoing, to have a truthful conversation takes a whole lot more people than just one or two. Um, and it means, and it means pastors, I think actually naming these realities um, from the pulpit around Bible studies, just kind of consistently digging at it. Like I said, um, and I do, I mean, I know, I know some great friends that are doing that work um, most notably. And I don't know why, no, I think the book was on there that I sent you the list drew Hart's book, the trouble I've seen. Is, yes, yeah, yeah, it was is one of those books that starts to name it in a way, at least we've seen it in um, Mennonite and Church of the Brethren context of really introducing a lot of the things that we would say are about the realities of race, right? Like using the language first of racialized hierarchy, right? Like, and, and Drew was amazing. We were having lunch. He goes, well, in my class, by the time we get to that, I go, well, what is this? And then someone says, well, white supremacy. Yep. <laughs> Right. Like it is a racialized hierarchy, but what's the nature of that racialized hierarchy? It's white supremacy. Right. right? So like right. ways of stepping into that, um, that do that. But I, I come back to what my friend Dominique Gilliard says. He works for the evangelical covenant church, um, that we are discipled into race. And so we actually have to reform or transform in the biblical language ourselves out of the socialization into race. Um, And that means that in a number of ways, like for me, like there's a personal work of having three or four um, pastors, leaders of color who I go to and say, help me understand what's going on here. Like, am I, Mm -hmm. am I reading this situation? Right. Right. Like in, in what drew and some others say is that there's a sense that I, as a white guy have to submit to leaders, especially women leaders of color um, to help understand a lot of those realities. Um, and that's my personal work. That's not my professional work. But that really does enable me to go into a congregation and and kind of receive the blows of that white backlash um, and say, no, look, I'm, you're stuck with me. Like I told I did tell a pastor who was really frustrated with me at one point. I said, look, this is the middle of COVID. I said, I have my vaccine. I'll drive down. I'll spend I'll spend two weeks there. We'll do breakfast around the neighborhoods, talking to people. I'll you know, have Bible studies once, you know, every night for two weeks. And we'll talk about this stuff. Like I'm ready to have this conversation, but I have to do a lot of personal work along the way to get ready for that. Right. Right. And that's, and that really is submission to persons of color and leaders of color. Yeah. Um, Well, I think that's an interesting notion, you know, and looking biblically in Christianity, right. Submission is one of those big things up to your thing, you know, you've got to be able to submit before mm-hmm. you can sort of move yourself forward. And so it's interesting that you say that, you know, one way that white pastors can do that is submitting themselves to those who are different to sort of learn and, and hear outside of their sort of normal sphere. Um, and so I guess based on that, you know, looking at that, do you think that there is a way 
to decenter whiteness in the church like mm. not talking about the methods of how we're doing it but do you think and maybe not our lifetime or you know next generation's lifetime but do you think that there's a way of of decentering that whiteness and sort of decentering anyness right so that it's really about the church and teachings and it's not about some group being at the center or being a victim or being an oppressor or you know sort of whatever like just removing all of that do you think that's a possibility in today's version of the church or does it have to be a complete transformation as you say well i do think it, there's a lot of upending right i'm gonna talk about right. like throwing <clears throat> throwing the tables around um, <laughs> i you know i think of places that are really trying to do this um there's a community here a congregation in bronzeville on the south side that not your south side <laughs> Chicago <laughs> Southside that are working on this where, um, and, and really part of this is that, and is, is doing it in a way that continues to put leaders of color at the very front of the church all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I know this church in Bronzeville, like it does have a white pastor, but he's amazing at like bringing in other voices, making sure that the voice at the pulpit isn't always the white guy. Um, <clears throat> there's a woman that wrote a book in the, the late nineties and it was really critiquing the, the like multicultural or intercultural movement in churches. Um, you know, we were in college when that was kind of hitting the, the college scene too, right? Like if we mm -hmm. can just have a multiculturalism project, we can start to solve some of these issues. Well, she comes back and says, look, as soon as a, a quote unquote multicultural congregation hits like, and it's not even the 50% mark, but like 30, 70, 30% non-white, 70% white, the white folks start leaving. <laughs> right? And that means, and that's both in terms of like the makeup of the congregation around them, but also who they are seeing at the front of the church all the time in terms of leadership and interpreting the scriptures, um, setting the direction, the need to name what the church is doing, the, that that white folks, as soon as they are not in a dominant position by numbers or voice, start to leave and find another place. That's so I think it can happen. And I think we continue to under, and I'm saying we as a white guy, we continue to undermine that every time, right? Like we have great ambitions, but we get super uncomfortable when other persons start to name both our theology and what our ethics should be in the dominant culture. That's interesting. That's very, and it's, you know, for me specifically, you know, when I was active in church, you know, back in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, at the Lutheran church, the Lutheran church was on the South side, which is a whole other topic. Um, <laughs> but, um, but we were on the South side of, of town and the Southeast quadrant, which is, you know, 80% black and everyone else is just sort of an older white person who hasn't moved out of the South side yet. But right. when you walked into my church, it was 98% white. And, you know, my family was pretty much the 2%. Uh, well, no fair. There was Chuck, one other person. Um, you know, but it was small enough that, like, I can literally name the amount of persons of color that were there. Um, and it was one of those weird things that this is a church. And, it, you know, the church has since been sold, financial issues, da da da, -da things that happened mm -hmm. in church. And now it is a black church. And so, you know, my church and that congregation moved elsewhere um, across town. 
but the physical church was still there and it was bought by a different denomination and now it's a black church mm-hmm. um, and the community attends. And one of the things when I was there still towards the end, when they finally sort of numbers started to, to plummet and they started to lose money was when they were trying to bring the local community into the building. And so we had uh, an afternoon service that was much more praise and worship based and not the traditional Lutheran church. And people stopped coming to church. They went to other Lutheran churches in the area. Money starts to seep out and eventually lose the church. And now that you say that, it's one of those, the whole part, their whole goal is trying to become multicultural to survive and bring in the local community. And that may have been the linchpin. That is what how they lost the church overall. Yeah, I, I think you know, we come back theologically and say one of the the greatest aspects of of the gospel, if you want to use that language, is that it's always enculturated. It's always embedded within a culture. I mean, the very idea of of God becoming flesh, right, in this Advent Christmas season—that's the the focal point. If God comes in the flesh, it means that it's always expressed in some sort of cultural medium, right? Right now. Sometimes it means that that cultural medium can fundamentally corrupt the core, the core nature of the gospel. At other times, it means that it doesn't matter what kind of music you play, right? Whether that's, you know, if you got a drum set, I mean, I went to a friend's ordination a couple of weeks ago and man, it was a small building and that drum set was, thumping. <laughs> it was loud. And you know, that, you can do that stuff or you can have the organ, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes maybe you have a good, a nice Hammond. I know a guy that's an amazing Hammond player for the black choir at Emory when I was there. Oh, fantastic. Right? Like you have mm-hmm. all of this range and it's not the cultural medium, although especially white persons begin to see their framework. I mean, this is going back to Du Bois, right? Like mm-hmm. I see the world in one frame where you see the world through two frames, right? Like there's, there's right. your, and I'm, I'm using you specifically, right? Yeah. Like as mm-hmm. a black mm-hmm. man, you see it in two ways. You, you know how to exist in the white spaces and in your own cultural, cultural medium. For me right. as a white guy, it takes a lot to begin to see that there are two ways of looking at the world that way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I just assume my cultural preferences are the normative for everybody else. Right. And so when all of a sudden somebody brings in the drum set and the Hammond, um, oh, I feel like I'm not hearing the gospel anymore. And that's just, uh, it's such it's a crazy. Struggle. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's really kind of insane, right? Like this is mm-hmm. how deeply embedded um, kind of the white assumption of the view from nowhere is in American Christianity. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's and you're right. You know, I think even at this time of year, if you put on, you know, if you're, oh, we're going to put on some Christmas music, I would get real suspect of the, what you're putting on because if there's no temptations, it's not Christmas music to me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I didn't grow up listening to Bean Crosby, you know? So, uh, well, I mean, I did whenever I left my house. When you were someone the in the white house. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know? Like, that's the white frame. But for me in a black house, we listened to the Jackson 5 and, you know, the Barry Gordy uh, Motown Christmas. That was Christmas, you know? So you're right. There's that whole two frames, you know, using that one example. Um, so looking at the church then, how much 
how much influence should the outside world, right? When we're, a lot of this we're talking about is cultural difference. Mm-hmm. How much influence should the outside world have in helping the church move through this? Because I don't think, I feel like in the past, it's always been these two different silos, right? Well, you know, we're going to do this and this is how the church is going to move forward. And society is doing this, but should there be some intermingling and not saying that, you know, you need to bring in atheists or agnostics, but just how much should the outside world have an influence on how the church is moving through this idea of racism? Well, I mean, I would, a, a good example of how this, and we come back to the backlash again, right. Is mm-hmm. as soon as those folks started having conversations or reaching out after George Floyd and Kenosha, um, very quickly, the rhetoric about critical race theory entered our churches. Or the rhetoric against critical race theory. Yeah, right. Right, which, as a, okay, as a historian, that drives me insane. Right? It yeah. absolutely yeah. drives me insane. Like, you don't know what <laughs> well, you're talking and look, about. As someone who works in DEI, my biggest thing I keep telling people, I'm like, it's a legal framework. Unless you were in law school. You have looking, never learned it. <laughs> never learned it. No one's ever taught it to you. Unless your child is somehow enrolled in a pre-K law program. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they are not learning critical race theory. You know, so I get, you know, from you as a historian, like, it's just one of those, I'm like, you realize that you, you've created an issue that does not exist. Oh, yeah. But this is, uh, historically, that's what white people do, right? Um, right. This is a scope monkeys trial. This is about fundamentalism all the way through race. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, and that's the, the question of critical race theory is one of those things of how is the wider conversation of race entering into the Christian discourse about race? Um, mm-hmm. Now it may not necessarily be, actually be critical race, but it, it's saying who informs the conversation and who sets right. the terms. Um mm-hmm. There's a guy out here, he teaches at Wheaton, his name's Esau McCulley, and he did, he's a great book called uh, Reading the Bible While Black, but he also did this kind of series of tweets, and it might have been in Christianity Today, where he was like, all your, this is my paraphrase, that Dr. McCulley is way more eloquent than I am about this, he's like, all y'all white guys are freaking out about social justice and this conversation about race, but we've been talking about this in the black church forever, yeah. Right, like in some ways, like I would say, we don't actually have to go to Ibram Kendi, who I, is a fantastic writer, or or any of these, mm-hmm. you know, the sixteen nineteen project. We don't have to go to these wider popular conversations because the Black Church has been having this conversation about what it means to be in a white dominant culture. Right. Well, right. Since since sixteen nineteen, right? Like, right. go there and hear how they're talking about it. They don't separate um, the wider movements of justice from the internal conversion, right? Like, they don't um, set up this binary of individual faith and dominant culture, right? Like, they just just go listen, <laughs> go listen to a preacher, right? So, in in one hand, I'm saying it doesn't have to be a conversation about the wider church or having those involved. Although it does help. I did help kind of facilitate a, a diversity to inclusion workshop um, for the church. We did it all online and, and the woman that did the DEI work for it. Um, 
she would name herself as atheist, I think. And then part of that's just mm-hmm. seeing how horrible the church has been, but it's not that she doesn't understand it. Um, but it was really helpful because she's coming into this setting, not being invested in the institutional structure in a way that the white folks are. And so she can say gotcha. some things and, and not f- not feel like she's losing her, her soul in the midst of saying it. Right. Gotcha. Um, no, nope, I get that. I get that. So there, there is a yeah. benefit of having a wider conversation about what race and the realities of race are doing in our culture. Um, mm-hmm. But not necessarily needed. If you just go to those who are in the culture who are already having the conversation. Oh yeah. 100% or have had the conversation for generations. Right. And right. Right. Um, or, or yeah, or hand him the boy, right? Or you know, <laughs> hand him, um, hand him Ida B. Wells, right? And then say, okay, yeah, tell yeah. me that George Floyd wasn't a lynching. Exactly right. Uh, Here's some bell hooks. Read this for a little while. Oh well, yeah, I would love to well, be able to hand the church bell hooks. <laughs> um, yeah, it'd be short-lived tenure for you then. That's all right. I'll, I'll take it. It'd be worth it. I'd, <laughs> I'd die on that hill. Uh, you know, so here, here outside Chicago in Elgin, where I live, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't do it intentionally at the beginning, right? They, the council called together uh, a task force on policing, on kind of re-envisioning policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of commend them for it. And then I was like, that would be amazing to be a part of, but I'm like, the last thing that they need in this task force is another white guy. Right. So I didn't apply the first time around. Well, then they did the second call for applicants. I'm like, all right, I'll at least put it in. And of course, then I get named to it. Right. Of course. And in the first meeting I said, but dude, I'm the only white guy, which is great. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it is fundamentally great when you think about the makeup of 18 people on this committee. And finally at one point I was like, they were trying to call a chair and I said, Hey, look, I can do it. I can, I administer all day and twice on Sunday, right? Administration is not a problem. The question is, should I? Like in some sense, as the white guy, I feel like my position here is to sit back and listen first. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, one of the, uh, there's several clergy on this group, right? And one of the black pastors is like, I really like that you said that, (laughs) right? Like you're not (laughs) going to tell me what, what I'm seeing is not what I'm seeing. I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. yeah, why would I do that? Yeah, no, that's good. That's well, I think that's that's interesting. You know, that hats off to them for putting it together. But I think that's that's a smart thing. Is that you? You know, you talked about your your own needing to learn and and outside of the church be able to grow. But I think that's an evidence of that growth and why that method works. Is that if you are doing the personal work as a leader, as someone who's a leader in faith, you recognize, well, I'm in the room, but I don't need to lead this room. Well, this is well, nothing that I need to be sitting in front of. hundred <laughs> percent. Right. And it's not about my ego to be there. Right. Like, Hey, look, mm-hmm. I helped reconsider police policy. Actually, no, I'm, I'm probably there to rubber stamp it as a white guy, which is okay. Right, sadly. Um, but I also don't go there to, to have my name in a history book, which I, I really uh, find it really striking about, white folk who start to engage anti-racism work often do have a desire for legacy. Right. Uh, 
and I struggle with that because I think, you know, in the church, like you said earlier, there are, there are fundamental conceptions within the Christian tradition that, that white Christianity is just bastardized. Mm-hmm. And one of those is, is humility, right? Like I actually don't know everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't have the perfect view from nowhere. Um, so, you know, again, I think it's amazing that we can start to reclaim certain key virtues right, within the, the Christian tradition to help us engage that work. Well, yeah, and humility, and it's spot on, right? Like the idea that if we're going to do this work, we have to admit that we don't know something. Oh, yeah. But that's also one of the biggest tenets of faith, isn't it? <laughs> you don't know everything, but you have the faith that you're being guided in the right direction. And then come back and say the discernment to recognize when you're being led in the opposite. In the wrong. Right. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. You know, the, the, the scriptures and the tradition are full of conversations about discernment of spirits. What is it that's happening here? Mm-hmm. And, and in the tradition, especially, sorry, now you're getting my PhD work. Man, it's fine. <laughs> in, the, in the, in the monastic tradition, you can't discern the spirits by yourself. Right. Right. Like you actually have to do engage in that work with someone else um, and say, and again, comes back to that, like, like we said earlier, submitting to um, persons of color for me is to say, okay, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not seeing something, aren't I? Like I'm missing something here, aren't I? Um, yeah. Anything that I've missed, anything that you want to say about racism and Christianity or, or those who are working to better things, what did I miss? Oh, I think, and you might know that, I mean, see it too, even outside the church, that that there's also a, a generational struggle mm-hmm. around the conversation of race. And I think that generational struggle is happening both in the white church and the black church. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Brenda, Brenda Salter McNeil opens her book, Becoming Brave, about being in St. Louis after uh, in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the kind of youth leadership of the nascent Black Lives Matter movement at that point is like, we're going down, they call and they're like calling these older pastors, right? I mean, Dr. McNeil's just a little bit older than us. And they're like, hey, we're going to City Hall. Are you coming with us? And all right. of a sudden they were like, uh, because <laughs> they're like, if you ain't coming, we're leaving now. Right. Right. That that there is this tension. And I heard it too on another trip where um, a woman who was in Birmingham in the, the children's crusade, um, you know, kind of talked disparagingly about black lives matter. I don't think she meant to do it, but she didn't feel like it connected to her experience of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is this generational divide that's happening. And I think in terms of the white church, that's similar, right? Like Mm -hmm. a, I do have this friend that she's a old plain dress minister in Virginia. And she's the last thing that she would call herself as a progressive. But, but when, uh, when George Floyd was killed, she was like, I thought we got past this. And I was like, wow, you really are a progressive. (laughs) (laughs) That noticeable generational difference. There's something of coming out Mm -hmm. of, of 64, 65, I mean, even a little bit later and 20, you know, 12, you know, go to 
to Trayvon to mm-hmm. there, there's something qualitatively different in the generational experiences of this, that that's a part I'm not, I don't have my finger on the pulse, but I recognize well, you, it and see it. Well, you know, it's funny <clears throat> here, there's a changing of the guard happening with our NAACP and the incoming president is, if he's 26, I'll give you 30 bucks. Like, I don't think he's even that old, uh-huh. right? Like super young, but the outgoing president is, he may, he may have retired like from work. He's that old. Mm-hmm. And there's this humongous gap where the incoming wants to do all these things that are very much different. And I was having this conversation. I was like, well, but you have to understand, you know, for the older generation, their job was just to stand up. Yeah. Like, for them showing up and making change was literally physically just showing up. Like that was the call. King said, you know, if we're going to march and we're going to do this, let's show up on Wallace's doorstep (laughs) and show him what we're about. Well, yeah, that was great. 50 years ago, we've moved beyond just showing up. And so now it's this new movement of, we need more action. We need to show up, but we also need to change laws. We also need to make sure that we're in the rooms where the laws are being made. Like there's so much more that this younger generation is willing to do. Not that the older generation wasn't willing to do it, but they couldn't imagine it, right? Like there's no way in the world in 64 and 65, you're going to say, hey, let's go to all the major corporations and figure out how we become board members so that we can make sure that their practices aren't racist. That wouldn't happen 50, 60 years ago. Today- that can happen. That can happen. And I think that's the difference is just the the work that was done then worked. It opened doors. It made change. But for that older generation that still has their hands on the wheel, they don't realize you need to let go. Like you've done your job. Thank you for your service. Now let the next generation move us to the next step forward. Yeah. That's, you know, you're talking about cycles again. I mean, that's not any mm-hmm. different from the NAACP in, in 1953 and, you know, coming out of Brown versus board. Right. Like, that was a major victory from the NAACP's strategy mm-hmm. to then have the Montgomery Improvement Association come along with this like radical idea of civil disobedience as a medium. Right. Mm-hmm. So then having, I mean, you literally have three generations at that point, right? Then you have SNCC come out of, of the sit-ins and you have mm-hmm. three generations trying to figure out how to do the same thing. And they didn't get along then either. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you have the SELC SNCC and the NAACP just kind of like picking back and forth at each other. I mean, this is right. Stokely Carmichael's strong rebuke of, of King and the nonviolence movement. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's happening again. Right. I think you're hundred percent right. That's happening again. I think that, and I think when you look at the Black Panther Party and 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 all of those things that happened in the seventies, and <clears throat> I think that there was a severe drop off, giving move bombings and and the jailing of UEP Newton and, and his and his assassination, and there was a fear of all right, we've gotten we've gotten so far, they're literally finding new ways to kill us, you know, and so I think that you know things lay dormant. I think there was a lot of work that was done, but it wasn't sort of the public facing continuously aggregating things that are happening. I think this new generation is willing to do that, but they're doing it in a way that's so radical. It's really upsetting those that came before us, but you're right. It's the same thing that was happening, you know, 50 through 70. 
multiple generations of people working towards the same cause, but just doing it radically different. So, yeah. And I, and I think it starts to show too, this is, it goes back to your culture question, right? Is, is what the, the kind of egalitarian approach of the early black lives matter and also then naming uh, intersectionality as a mm-hmm. part of the realities of race, whether, you know, starting to name the impact of, of race intersecting with gender and sexuality um, mm-hmm. ruffles a lot of feathers. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it's good. It's, it's, it's fundamentally good. I mean, I was saying about this person that I attended her ordination, right. She's the, the first woman in her congregation to be ordained. This is oh, my Lord. 2021. And she's right, the hundred years after and, suffrage. Yeah, yeah, and and her her perseverance there is fantastic, and the and the allies she had in the congregation that kind of worked at that for her, um, to make it happen are are astounding. But let's go ahead and name there are some struggles there, right? Gender does mm-hmm. intersect there differently, uh, right? So it's there's a lot of work to be done, and it's okay to have those cultural incursions that help shed some light on some assumptions that we've made along the way. All right. All right. Hey, sometime well, I have to tell they, you about the research I did on Selma. Oh yeah. We will have to have that talk. Cause yeah, we'll do that. I'm, we'll do that. Cause I think yeah. it starts to get at some of this too, of, of how does the white church engage the larger movements for, for civil rights, maintaining those civil rights. Well, we will definitely have to do that in a future episode. So yep, let's do it. All right, man. Thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. So, uh, Josh Brockway, if folks wanted to get a hold of you, are you up for that or not? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, Jay Brockway at brethren.org. So that's B R E T H R E N.org. All right. And I'll drop that in the show notes as well. So, Josh, thank you for your time. Have an am- <clears throat> Ooh, and there goes my voice. Have an amazing day. Yeah, thanks, dude. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.